0: Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 61. In the early 1960s, the city of Boston found itself gripped in fear as a mysterious and violent force roamed its streets, a phantom predator, leaving a trail of terror in its wake. Welcome to another episode of Historical True Crime, where we delve into the dark chapters of our past to unravel the secrets of the Boston Strangler. From 1962 to 1964, a series of heinous crimes unfolded, sending shockwaves through the community and forever changing the perception of safety within the city. A shadowy figure preying on unsuspecting victims, leaving behind a haunting mystery that would endure for decades. The Boston Strangler, as the media would dub The Assailant, struck fear into the hearts of residents as the body count rose. In this episode, we will journey back to that unsettling time, exploring the crime scenes, examining the investigative methods of the era, and seeking to understand the psyche of a killer who remained elusive, slipping through the grasp of law enforcement. Join us as we peel back the layers of history attempting to separate fact from fiction, and shed light on the chilling tale of The Boston Strangler. In a city where streets were meant to be familiar, where neighbors were supposed to be trustworthy, darkness lurked beneath the surface, waiting to expose the fragility of security and the depths of human depravity. To understand the climate or background that set the stage for these haunting events surrounding the Boston Strangler, we have to step back into the vibrant yet turbulent era of the 1960s. America was a nation undergoing profound transformations, and the city of Boston mirrored the societal shifts that defined the decade. In the early 60s, Boston found itself caught in the cross currents of social change. As the civil rights movement gained momentum, the fight for racial equality echoed through the city streets. Simultaneously, the specter of the Cold War and the Vietnam War cast a shadow over the nation, stirring a potent cocktail of anxiety and uncertainty. Boston, a city steeped in history and tradition, was grappling with the clash between the old and the new. The working-class neighborhoods and cobblestone streets held echoes of a bygone era, while a wave of modernity was sweeping through the cityscape. Amidst this background of change, Boston faced a rising tide of crime, challenging the sense of security that residents had long taken for granted. A palpable unease hung in the air as headlines chronicled an uptick in criminal activities creating an atmosphere of caution and suspicion. The city, much like the nation, stood at a crossroads, grappling with its identity and the evolving dynamics of its neighborhoods. It's within this intricate tapestry of historical events that the Boston Strangler emerged, a sinister force preying on the vulnerabilities of a city in flux. 13 women in the Boston region were found to have been sexually abused in their homes and strangled to death with their own garments between June 1962 and January 1964. The victim's ages would range from 19 to 85. One person ultimately identified as the Boston Strangler would be blamed for all of the murders. Whether or not that's actually the case, we'll discuss further. But women throughout Boston lived in fear throughout these two years. Even in the daytime, they were terrified to leave their homes, but just as afraid to stay inside. It appeared that the murderer was using some sort of ruse to gain access to the victim's homes because there had been no evidence of forced entry in any of the cases. On June 14, 1962, 55-year-old Anna Slessers, the first victim, was discovered strangled with her bathrobe belt on the kitchen floor of her apartment and two 60-year-old women were discovered to have been strangled and sexually assaulted within only a few weeks. A victim pattern was beginning to emerge of older unmarried women being murdered inside their own homes. According to Smith for SmithsonianMag.com, by the end of August, there would be six victims in total. Extensive coverage of the killings was provided by local media, who blamed a phantom strangler of unleashing a maniacal spree of violence ...that has gripped in terror thousands of greater Boston women who live alone, according to the Boston Globe. The fact that these women had been attacked in their own homes after allegedly letting the murderer inside made a lot of people uneasy. Some women started carrying hat pins, pepper and ammonia, or tear gas pistols as a form of self-defense. Women who lived alone were urged by police to let no one into an apartment until positive identification is established, and to secure all of their doors and windows. Fall 1962 brought a temporary break with no killings recorded until December. Authorities were able to better coordinate their efforts to investigate the murders and enhance coordination between departments because there were many municipalities where the crimes had been committed. At first, it was thought that older women were the intended targets of the assailant, but then on December 5th, in her apartment's foyer, 20-year-old African-American student, Sophie Clark, of the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology, was discovered strangled with a pair of stockings. In 1963, four more deaths would be linked to the Boston Strangler, perplexing detectives and giving the public the impression that there was no end in sight to these crimes. Of the four new victims, Joanne Graff, 22, was the youngest, and Mary Brown, 69, the oldest. Another victim, 26-year-old Sammons, died from stab wounds, but was discovered with scarves and a stocking tied around her neck. Brown had also been stabbed numerous times, but had ultimately been strangled to death. On January 4, 1964, the killer would murder Mary Sullivan, a 19-year-old, as his final victim. All of the city of Boston was gripped by fear over this strangler. While one kind of criminal had the police on edge, others would prosper. An example of one of these criminals was the Green Man, who started his criminal rampage in Boston before terrorizing cities in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. According to Serena for authorities think that over 400 burglaries and over 300 sexual assaults on women were carried out by this so-called Green Man, named because of the green clothing he would wear while performing his crimes. A task force was searching for the green man at the same time as it was looking into the Boston Strangler. A 20 year old Cambridge woman reported being sexually assaulted to the police in October 1964. She informed them that she had woken up and a man was in her bedroom. He molested her while tying her up and brandishing a knife. He would release her shackles after she complained that they were too tight. The authorities saw parallels between this attacker and another offender with a history of sexual deviance after she assisted them in drawing a sketch of her attacker. This criminal's name? Albert DeSalvo. But the police had called him the Measuring Man. The late 1950s saw the start of the Measuring Man's crime spree. He would approach people at their doors in search of young women, posing as a talent scout for the Black and White Modeling Agency. If they showed interest, he would ask to measure them while caressing them and assaulting them as he went. After being apprehended by police in 1960 while breaking into a woman's house, DeSalvo acknowledged that he was the measuring man. Albert would be sentenced to 18 months in jail for his crimes, but would serve only 11 before finally being released for good behavior. Following his release from prison, he would also vanish from police's view enter the final victim of the green man. Police linked DeSalvo to the incident and released his picture to the newspaper after receiving the woman's report. Several other women would immediately come forward to name DeSalvo as their attacker. DeSalvo would be taken into Bridgewater State Hospital, but after only being charged with one rape. It was there he would meet George Nasser, a fellow prisoner who'd been found guilty of murder. Nasser would ask his own lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, who would become well known for defending Patty Hearst and assisting in O.J. Simpson's defense in the 90s. Nasser would ask Bailey one day in February 1965 if the Boston Strangler could make some money by publicizing his narrative. When Bailey questioned him about what he meant, Nasser explained that he knew DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo would record an interview in the psychiatric section of the hospital where he did acknowledge being the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo's 1967 confession to being the Boston Strangler, however, sparks suspicion among the five different district attorney's offices and other law enforcement agencies who were looking into the murders. This was partly because the victims' dispersed locations led them to believe that multiple men were responsible for the stranglings. But it appeared from further police interviews that DeSalvo was guilty. He was aware of particular circumstances surrounding the killings, including the color of some of the victim's apartment's furniture and the name of a victim whose picture had never been released before. His admissions contributed to Bostonians' belief that the serial killer had finally been apprehended. But questions remain since DeSalvo was not connected to any of the crimes by any physical evidence. DeSalvo's lawyer urged that his client should be admitted to a hospital, where doctors could find out what made him kill. Bailey said, quote, society is deprived of a study that might help deter other mass killers who lived among us, waiting for the trigger to go off inside them. DeSalvo was instead given a life sentence. And we do have a bit of information about DeSalvo's upbringing, and some will point to this as why he may have potentially turned into a criminal and a murderer. DeSalvo was raised in Chelsea, Massachusetts, a tiny town alongside his five siblings after his birth in 1931. When he was younger, he began to get into trouble and was twice sent to the reform School, Lindman School for Boys in Massachusetts. At the age of 17, he enlisted in the United States Army and served for eight years. During that time, he would marry Irmgard back a German woman and had two children together. In his 1966 book, The Boston Strangler, Author Gerald Frank described DeSalvo using information from hundreds of hours of in-person interviews, as well as records from the police, courts, and medical departments. According to DeSalvo's account in the book, he and his brother were required to stand before their father each night and endure beatings with a belt that had a large buckle on it. "'I saw my father knock my mother's teeth out, and then break every one of her fingers. I must have been seven. Ma was laid out under the sink. I watched it,' DeSalvo said." He smashed me once across the back with a pipe. I just didn't move fast enough. Frank also writes in the book that DeSalvo recounted how, without their mother's knowledge, their father had sold him and two of his sisters for $9 to a farmer in Maine, and their mother had looked for them for six months. In addition, DeSalvo shared bleak tales about his early years with Ruth Brown, a New Yorker who wrote to him following her reading of The Boston Strangler, and who once had paid him a visit in jail. Brown said to the Star Gazette, a newspaper published in Elmira, New York, that his sister and mother used to tell him they wished he was dead. According to Brown, he said when he was a little boy, he slept with a dog because a dog wouldn't bite him. Now, whether his childhood or abuse he suffered contributed to his becoming a criminal or a murderer is debatable. And despite being convicted of other crimes, DeSalvo was never prosecuted for the Boston Strangler killings. And apart from a jailbreak in February 1967 that initiated a nationwide manhunt, he would be incarcerated for the rest of his life. And not long after retracting his confession to being the Boston Strangler in November 1973, he would be stabbed to death in a prison hospital. And for 46 years, the Boston Strangler case stayed unsolved. Apparently, there were no more victims. Then the cops made a breakthrough in 2013. Police were able to connect Albert DeSalvo to Mary Sullivan, the 19-year-old victim of the Boston Strangler, by using DNA discovered on a water bottle that belonged to DeSalvo's nephew, Tim. Semen were on a blanket covering Sullivan's body, and the Y-DNA, or genetic material passed down via the male line in families found on the bottle, matched almost exactly – Police were given permission to exhume Albert's remains and collect a DNA sample following the Y-DNA match, and they would be relieved once again that it was a match. Mary Sullivan's case was closed, with Albert DeSalvo being proclaimed the killer by the authorities after his death. However, the killer or killers of the remaining 12 Boston Strangler victims are still unknown, because no DNA was found to match their cases. And because of this, the Boston Strangler case is still pending today. According to Dubofsky for Mashable.com, author of The Boston Stranglers, Susan Kelly, and criminologist and FBI profiler, Robert Retzler, both thought that the 13 killers had to be the work of more than one individual. Kelly's research highlights that the details that DeSalvo had are identical to those that were published in the era's media. This implies that he might have just repeated what was being said or printed rather than knowing the true details of the crimes themselves. Regarding Rustler, he believed that the methods used in the purported strangler cases were too diverse. He stated to CBC News in 2001, You're putting together so many different patterns here that it's inconceivable behaviorally that these could all fit one individual. Among the alternative suspects in the case is George Nasser, the prisoner to whom DeSalvo is said to have confessed. George was given a life sentence in 1967 for the shooting death of a petrol station attendant in Andover, Massachusetts. Nassar's appeals of his 1967 conviction were turned down by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 2008 and again in 2009. Nassar has been described as a misogynistic, psychopathic killer and a considerably more likely suspect in the Strangler murders than DeSalvo. By Ames Roby, a former prison psychiatrist, who examined both Desalvo and Nasser. A number of supporters of the case have also proclaimed Nasser to be the genuine strangler, alleging that he sent Desalvo information about the killings. They surmise that because Desalvo knew he would be imprisoned for the rest of his life for the Green Man attacks, that he confessed in order to enable Nasser to receive reward money, that they would then divide so Desalvo could continue to support his two children. His intense desire for notoriety served as another motivation. Roby testified that Albert so badly wanted to be the strangler, expressing DeSalvo's anticipation that the case would make him renowned worldwide. Nasser claimed that the rumors had ruined his prospects of being granted parole when he denied being involved in the killings in a 1999 interview with the Boston Globe. Quote, I had nothing to do with it, he claimed. I'm convicted under the table behind the scenes. So whether DeSalvo was, in fact, responsible for all of the Boston Strangler killings, or perhaps there was one or more suspects that have never been caught, we may never know. But the impact of this case on popular culture is undeniable. The case inspired numerous books, documentaries, and films, each offering their own interpretation of the mystery surrounding the elusive killer. Hollywood seized upon the intrigue, bringing the Boston Strangler to the silver screen and gripping dramas that captured the imaginations of audiences worldwide. In more recent years, Hulu even ventured into the case with its own interpretation of the Boston Strangler story, a historical crime drama starring Kira Knightley as Loretta McLaughlin, the reporter who broke the story for the Boston Record American. As we conclude our journey into the haunting legacy of the Boston Strangler, We find ourselves standing at the intersection of history, crime, and the enduring mysteries that still shroud this dark chapter in Boston's past. It's crucial to acknowledge that while Albert DeSalvo was convicted and later linked to one of the victims through DNA, the true identity of the Boston Strangler or potential accomplices remains shrouded in uncertainty. The narrative surrounding this case is one of complexity, with alternative suspects and unanswered questions still echoing through the corridors of time. But join us next time as we delve into another chapter of historical true crime, uncovering the secrets and untold stories that shape our understanding of the past. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case or criminal to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historical true crime pod or on Facebook at historical true crime podcast. You can also send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.